This show is made possible by you, our listeners. If you like what you hear, and if you want to help us tell more stories and reach more people, then from only two US dollars a month, you can become a patron of the show. Just visit patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network. Hello, I'm Jake Lloyd and welcome to How to Build Community, a podcast and a radio show brought to you by Aruka Network. In this episode, we speak to the man who went from community worker to running one of the biggest healthcare organizations in the world and now working in global health to build partnerships across cultures. The West finds it difficult to learn. People tend to think we in the West have got the answers. Now, the truth is, we've got some of the answers. Other people have got some of the answers. And between us, we don't know some of the answers. And that's where I refer to co-development, where we're working on this together. That's the voice of Lord Nigel Crisp. He began his career in community work in the northwest of England, and he went on to become chief executive of the National Health Service in the UK, which employs around 1.3 million people. He is now a writer and advocate for global health, notably through co-chairing what is called the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Global Health in the British Parliament. He's also the author of books on global health and collaboration, including One World Health, An Overview of Global Health, and Turning the World Upside Down, The Search for Global Health in the 21st Century. And in the conversation you're about to hear today, he shares with us some of what he's learnt on this journey. We cover leadership, building partnerships, learning from people in different cultures, our interconnectedness as human beings, community as a foundation of health creation, and lots more besides. But I began by asking Lord Crisp how he first became interested in working in health. After university, I started to work as a community worker in Liverpool, or at least an overspill estate outside Liverpool. Um, and I suppose I wasn't particularly interested in health as such. It was much more in community and community development and everything that came from it. And I spent uh, about four and a half years there as, uh, you know, just straight out of university. And we did a lot of things with young people. We did a lot of theatre. We did a lot of writing with people, actually, which was interesting. We also got involved to some extent in welfare rights and so on. But there, I think one of the things I learned and brought it back to my later career, really, was that um, you build on people's strengths. You know, in a community, you have to, this was a poor community and people when it, when it were both sort of, in a sense, neglected, but also overlooked and thought of as rather failures, really. Um, so we were doing things that were about strengthening about building on their strengths about exciting activities and about achievement really giving people some hope for the future but the other thing i learned there which was interesting was that how difficult it was to connect with the formal system you know we were doing all this sort of interesting stuff or we thought it was interesting i'm sure it was at the most local level and this is 40 years ago bear in mind um but being able to connect in with the formal health service or the formal social services or whatever um, seemed really, uh, really difficult. And then it was some years later, I did various other things in, in, my, in my career, and then I sort of fell into the health service in my mid-30s. And that was really building to some extent on, on that early time in the community and recognising that 
health and care, health creation. These are things which are a sort of golden thread, really, in community development. So that's where I was coming from. So, th- so then you went from there into the NHS and and rose through the ranks there. I suppose you could say. Um, I guess most people will have will have heard of the NHS. They might not know. I mean, I understand it's now the what's the fifth biggest employer in the world. Do you want Do you want to talk through the idea behind the NHS and then the the role you came to occupy within it? Yes. Uh, I mean, actually, between my community work and, and the NHS, I actually did uh, a number of other things, including probably most notably uh, working in industry for a while. So it was in my mid-30s I joined the NHS. Now, the National Health Service in England is, uh, and in the UK, is a really great organisation which was founded in the UK just after the war. And it was intended, and indeed does, provide health care free at the point of need. In other words, when you need it. Um, you don't make any payments at all. We pay for it in our country through taxes. Really important dynamic that that actually there's no you know, there's no asking for money at the point at which you you need healthcare, and it's also comprehensive, although less so now than it was. Um, and it tries to treat everyone equally within the system. It was set up in 1948, and there was a great um, label attached to it, which was in place of fear. Um, because before that, if people needed healthcare, they had to pay for it or perhaps go to a charity or whatever. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it, in, in a number of countries in the world. And of course, a number of people, if, if the breadwinner, if the main income earner in a, in a family lost their job, then actually, uh, no, sorry, lost their job, but lost their job because of ill health, then they had to, um, you know, the, 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 the family might well become bankrupt and really be put into poverty again sounds terribly familiar with the rest of the world and we labeled that or it was labeled at the time in place of fear and it was a great ambitious thing to be doing and good to see that other countries have done that and good to see just in the last um two weeks that pakistan has announced its great uh, move towards creating a welfare state so that's the national health service very big fourth biggest employer in the world when i was running it um, 1.4 million people working for it. Um, I joined it and I worked in it for precisely 20 years, the last six of them running it. So I was in charge of this whole uh, enterprise and I was also uh, head of the Department of Health. So mixing with the politicians, if you like, I wasn't a politician, I, I was a health manager. Um, so I was one of the people whom I had found it difficult to contact when I was um, when I was doing the community work in Liverpool. And and um, I mean it's it's well publicised a lot of the challenges that the NHS um, faces or has faced in the UK with the cost involved in in maintaining it with a with a, a kind of growing population. Um, and you since then moved on and have become involved in global health and international development and. You hear stories uh, from this side of things of a shortfall in in health workers globally and things like that. Are those two things uh, related? Those challenges in the NHS and these challenges globally with with health. Well, health, health is totally global. There, there, there are lots of things that divide us, but lots of things that link us. Let me just go back to the NHS. I mean, the NHS and any health service, you will always hear stories about crises and so on. Um, and I can't think of a country in the world where that isn't the case. Mm. And it will also always be relatively political. It is worth remembering that the National Health Service in England 
has been consistently rated number one by uh, a, a, a very um, prestigious American think tank over the last 10 years. Um, and it's rated number one because it's partly because it's sufficient, partly because it is so uh, it, it reaches people within the community, whereas a number of other health services around the world don't actually reach to everyone within the community. And that's a really, really important part of it. But there are pressures on it. And the biggest pressure in health globally at the moment, there are two. Uh, the first one is the big transition to what we tend to call long-term conditions or chronic diseases. So the big increase in, 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 in things like diabetes, in heart disease, in respiratory disease, in asthma, in dementia and so on. These long-term conditions, which need to be treated very differently from the things that we died from, let us say, 50 years ago in the West, which would be you know, much more acute episodes, heart attacks and, uh, and infection and so on. Now, uh, low and middle income countries are shifting from the, uh, from, from the position where they're still dealing with a lot of infectious diseases, but they're also having to deal with these non-infectious diseases. But I'd say the second biggest issue is the lack of health workers. Um, we have something of the order of 40 million, 42 million, I think at the last count, trained health workers globally. We reckon at the moment there's a shortfall of 18 million and that that is increasing. And it's increasing as um, developing countries or countries that have got fast developing economies have got more money and are seeking to invest in their health workforce. So you've got a, um, you, you've got a sort of real uh, stretch at the moment of more demand, uh, more people be, be becoming able to get health care. Uh, and um, uh, and therefore you've got this sort of continuing problem, and it's a global problem. Could you could you describe? So we charted this this journey from uh, you know a community in Liverpool in the UK to to the national health service in the UK, and then uh, more towards your work uh, globally. Well, how would you how do you summarise the the focus of your of your work globally in the last um, you know ten years or so? The focus of my work globally is that when I uh, left the NHS, I, ha I had, well, in fact, in the last two years uh, in the NHS, so this was 2004, 2006, I got really interested in global issues. I was aware how joined up we were, joined up because people move between them, because evidence, we, we, we share evidence, because diseases travel, you know, a, 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 um, a microbe can get on a plane in, in Sri Lanka and be in, Montreal within 12 hours, having perhaps changed at Paris or something. Um, you know, the, the, we, we, are, we are interconnected, huge ways in which we're interconnected. So I've got interested in that. I've also got interested in, uh, and so I started to work in Africa. And my biggest issue I've been working on in Africa has been health workers and developing and training health workers with help from British doctors and nurses, um, but also doing an awful lot of learning from Africa because this is very much two-way. Um, and I can give you some examples of that. But just before I do, I hope to say one of the other things that I have learned through my career is that we always talk about health as if it was something to do with the National Health Service or health services. Remember that the biggest impacts on health are nothing to do with healthcare. Um, they are clean water, if you're working in some places. There are other environmental issues. There are social issues. There are unemployment. There are poverty. Uh, there are lack of education. You know, there are still children in this world who die um, unnecessarily from diarrhea because their mothers don't know how to rehydrate them. One of the biggest things we can do to improve health globally is to make sure that every woman, uh, every girl gets a good education 
and that is has has an absolutely profound effect. So this is about health, not health services. In in estimation, suggests that health services, i.e., health care, hospitals, and the like, probably contribute about thirty percent to our health and our longevity. It's all those other things in the society which takes me back to the community, um, takes me back very heavily to the community and to what can be done in community development. So what are some of those lessons you've learned from, you know, you said that the, say, richer countries can learn a lot from from some of the poorer countries. Do you want to tell us some stories or share some instances of what? Let, let, let me pick up one or two. Um, Ten years ago, I wrote a book called Turning the World Upside Down, um, which was precisely about what we can learn from low and middle income countries here in the rich West. But it was also saying we must stop pretending that when we go to countries and work with people in Africa or India or wherever, that we know the answers because we don't. So actually, there's a lot we can learn. There's a lot they can teach us. There's a lot they can learn from us. The great expression, everyone's got something to teach and everything. Everyone's got something to learn. But let me give you an example. It comes from Kenya. 1976, a young woman called Miriam Wery um, uh, graduated from Nairobi Medical School, essentially top in her class. And she decided to do her, her PhD or do her doctorate on a doctorate in public health, in fact, on community development and patient involvement. And the reason that she decided to do that was that she had realized that in her hospital, the biggest single issue was what she described as the oral fecal link. In other words, hygiene. And that actually that emanated from the community. And therefore, the biggest thing that she could do to really improve health globally, locally rather, was to work with villages and particularly village women. And she developed a whole set of programs of helping communities to do some simple things around hygiene, but also to do other things. Um, And now you've got a great movement in Africa of what are called community health workers. Community health workers, typically, uh, well, always village people, typically women, um, who probably know how to do about 20 things. Ten of them you might think of as curative. Uh, So they may be actually dealing with a problem, uh, like making sure that women are able to hydrate their babies um, if after diarrhea or women and parents, um, and about 10 of them that are, are preventative about making sure people separate clean and dirty water about contraception and so on. Now, that idea of community health workers who are who get a, a small element of training, um, but not, not as long as a professional, uh, is spreading, and it's spreading into the West. And about 10 years ago, it appeared in New York. And in order to reach some of the people in New York who needed support with their health, they developed a program of community health workers that was very similar to the African one. So you have a sort of model where the community health workers are out there in the community and they're part of the community. They are then linked in to the professionals and the professionals then may be linked into the hospital. So you've got a very different sort of approach and we're starting to learn that community health workers can be really significant here in our country uh, and it's what villages and communities do uh, and not just what the professionals do. And are these typically uh, more cost-effective as well? Do they save money? Well, they save disease, and therefore they save money. I mean, uh, if that's what you mean by cost-effective. I mean, if you think of the curve, if you can stop something happening, it's a darn sight cheaper than having to deal with it later on. And if you think about health in particular, if you can deal with diabetes by helping, uh, diabetes type 2, by helping people to live healthy lives, that saves you not only the treatment of diabetes, 
but the thing that happens after that, which is the treatment of the um, of the complications of diabetes, which can affect eyesight and 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 and, and vascular systems and a whole range of different things. Mm-hmm. So, in that sense, they're obviously cost effective. Can you can you tell us a bit about? So, you've described that this instance of community health workers and and the, the idea spreading from Kenya to to the US and you know all around the world. Th- these themes that that come up in your work um, of co co development and partnerships and interdependence. Can you tell us a bit about the um, how you have worked to to spread these ideas and these ways of working and uh, projects you've been involved with? Well, this book is obviously uh, very important, um, uh, the turning the world upside down. I'm not trying to plug it, well, though I am plugging <laughs> it, obviously, because it tells a number of those stories, and people have been collecting those stories. And the West finds it difficult to learn, you know, because it's very difficult to get articles into the medical press and so on if you're coming from a, uh, a country or, from, or not coming from an institution that's recognised as a sort of centre of learning or whatever. Um, and people tend to be to think we in the West have got the answers. Now, the truth is, we've got some of the answers. Other people have got some of the answers. And between us, we don't know some of the answers. And particularly the way I describe diseases as changing, so we've got more long-term conditions in the future, we don't know how to deal with those. Neither we nor people in low- and middle-income countries. But the, but, and that's where I say I refer to co-development, where we're working on this together. And there's been some very interesting partnerships in the UK between organisations in the UK and organisations in, in Africa, typically, or uh, parts of the world where people speak English, um, uh, and where they've both been working on the same sort of problem and learning from each other. We will get back to the interview with Lord Nigel Crisp in a moment. If you are enjoying what you hear, if you'd like to hear more from people like Nigel, if you'd like to support what we are doing with this podcast and radio show, then why not go to patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network. And for as little as two US dollars a month, you can become a patron of this show. With that, you can get some goodies, you can get a shout out on the show, and you can access additional material from our guests. So go to patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network today. But back to the interview, before the break, Nigel said that the West finds it difficult to learn. And with this show being about building community, I asked Nigel about times in which the West has failed to grasp how community-led co-development might work. You know, I mean, I've certainly come across lots of community-led projects led by the community and with nothing to do with the outside world until maybe later they've developed a bit. Um, So I do think that is a really important point. I think of, for example, a a group in... um, in the Thar Desert, West uh, Rajasthan, um, a group of weavers who realised that they had a, a you know, a bit like new, that <laughs> they didn't have um, health provision and have essentially started to develop it and create it themselves and then called in uh, people from outside to help. Um, so uh, I, I was chairman of something called Sight Savers, which deals with eyes, as you would imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it... Um, very, it, it provided small grants to this organisation in in in, uh, in the Thar Desert um, to um, help with um, uh, their projects and so on. So that was community built up from below, uh, and then calling on these 
Westerners to help, as it were, if you like. Um, and I think that's the way around it should be. I've certainly seen examples of where, many, many examples, I'm sorry to say, of where smart Westerners have gone into a country and thought they had the solution and decided the solution was to do X or Y. Sometimes that may be trying to create community-based things uh, and very often failing because health uh, and, and all the behaviours associated with it are, are culturally um, determined to a very large extent. People need to understand uh, what's going on. You saw this a bit with um, HIV AIDS, for example, in, um, in South Africa, where I remember that one of the issues was trying to get people to get tested so they knew if they had HIV. And of course, there was great stigma because if you were seen to be being tested, <laughs> um, then you uh, were, were, were you know, stigmatized, as it were, because you know, it was assumed you'd, you'd got a problem. Uh, you, you may have HIV. And I've seen some projects there which haven't worked well because people have not handled that in culturally sensitive ways. But I've seen other projects where uh, run by nurses, interestingly, and women, where they have actually been much more effective at working with the local community because they are of the community, they understand what's going on, uh, and therefore have been able to make things happen. Mm. And people have been tested discreetly so nobody else knew and, and all the rest of it. So this is uh, a bit, this podcast has been going for uh, about two years now, and so this idea of how to build community and learning from people like mm -hmm. you and um, people all over the world um, who are running certain projects, and it's incredible how often uh, listening comes up as being yeah. fundamental to the success of any community building project whether that be something that originates from within a community or something that's perhaps stimulated by an outsider what, what what's uh how important is listening to to all of this stuff do you think well yeah i mean you're quite right of course it's fundamental but there's another fundamental point there which 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 is actually that that's also about relationships the two are connected mm. um I've been involved with a lot of partnerships between British organisations and other organisations locally. So a, a partnership between, for example, Guys in St. Thomas's Hospital in London uh, and Indola Hospital in the Copper Belt in Zambia. Mm. So you've got a relationship between the two where, um, you know, people from Guys in St. Thomas go and work in Indola for a while and people from Indola come back to the UK and um, may, may get some training of some sort. And you, you've got a sort of very positive two-way benefit, people learning from each other. But those sort of partnerships don't just happen, and you can't just plan them. You can't just start off and say we want them to happen. My experience is that it takes two or three years of relationship and trust building up. You know, So the listening is an important bit of it. The trust, the relationships are important bits of it. And because lots of people in, in Africa and India and wherever else, and I'm sure there are listeners, people listening here who, who will recognize this, have been used to foreigners coming in and saying we're going to help you doing something which may may not have worked and then and then disappeared you know didn't come back the second year or the third year or whatever so i think you know the, these are, these have got to be real issues of mutual trust mutual respect mutual learning it's the language i use as, as you know is co-development and mm. uh, and mutual learning for that and listening central to that listening Listening and actually experiencing, because I can listen to something, but actually it is different when you when you realise that what you're trying to think about with your friends from Africa is how you make something happen in a very particular context, 
Um, so it's listening and to some extent looking, <laughs> uh, but being respectful and together, you can move things on. I, I wanted to ask, so with these interviews, we like to learn some practical tips or gain some advice from, from the interviewees. And w- one thing I'd written down before speaking to you, and you, I think you've kind of touched on that, is so you talked about, uh, I think, that partnership with the Copper Belt and St. Thomas's Hospital um, uh, in Zambia in the UK. And this idea that you need to build up these relationships over over yeah. a couple of years. I, I wonder when when there's this uh, investing in people and relationships rather than say investing in a construction project or something like that. Uh, do you experience a, a challenge in convincing people that investing in relationship is is worthwhile and will pay dividends? When you say in, in experience of difficulty, do you mean with with people who might be funders, for example? Yeah, I, that's what I was thinking. Donors and funders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well. I think there's several different difficulties there. One is that in in the UK, if somebody's got a mindset from the UK where you decide to do something, you put up a plan, you, you then sort of make it happen, you know, and, and you, you, you've got a, there's always problems. It's not as easy as just doing that, but you've got, you, you understand how that's done. Whereas if you try and do that in a different environment and you'd better factor in somewhere on the, the line that the water supply is intermittent, um, that actually there isn't three-phase electricity, or maybe there isn't electricity, um, that people have been trained differently, that the public are going to relate to you differently, that you've got to build you've got to build relationships with trusted guides and you know share ownership. That actually the planning cycle that we've just talked about from you know deciding to try and do something and then making it happen, the planning and implementation cycle, maybe three times as long. Um, and for donors, they may find that difficult to understand particularly if they you know, haven't had any experience themselves. In some cases, it might be quicker, but in quite a number of places, you will come across the people doing the sort of planning and thinking about it, if it's done too much from the West, will be, uh, will, will be making assumptions about what is possible and what may not be possible. And you can do stuff in the, rainy, in the dry season, you can't do in the rainy season and so on. You know, so the, uh, but, but also more cultural aspects of it. Uh, uh, and so on, which are which are really important. So I do think donors and others who haven't experienced it, because some donors have experienced it, and mm. people like IFID in the UK uh, are generally good at understanding all these cultural contexts, uh, will find that difficult to understand. Politicians sitting on top of those government departments will find it difficult to understand, because politicians work on a political timescale, which is three years if you're lucky. Uh, whereas development and the sort of things you're doing and talking about and, and so on take years uh, and people invest their, their lives and their reputations and their relationships in it. Um, so the, the, there is a tension there. And th- these things is that you write about and fight for, co-development partnerships, interdependence, these things, how would you rate the kind of level of progress that has, has taken place in the last 10 years towards this way of working? I think there has been a bit of a shift, but not nothing like enough. Right at the beginning of this uh, podcast, you asked me about my background working as a community worker. And one of the things that struck me looking back on it is how difficult it was for me doing something in the community to link in with the formal system. And that is still very, very true. It is very difficult for big organisations and systems like our National Health Service here or governments or whatever to link in with what a really often very small community-based 
local things. The, the difference of scale, there's a difference of time scale, there's a, a difference of personal involvement and, and, and all kinds of things. So I think those difficulties remain. What I do think there's been a shift in is people understanding more uh, the point that Miriam Werry, great Miriam Werry, understood 40 years ago is that health is not something that is done in hospitals. Health is something that's done in the community. And that actually, if you do want to take pressure off hospitals, of course, but 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 actually, if you do want to have a healthy population, you've really got to concentrate on this stuff. And I think people are beginning to understand that much more, that this is about health and not health services, health and well-being, health and well-being in a healthy way of life as opposed to hospitals. And I, I think there's more understanding of that and people are, you know, I see in the NHS here that there's a sort of recognition of the need for community building. So it's sort of starting to happen, but we're in the foothills. We've got a long way to go. If you could kind of click your fingers and change change one thing, what what would it what would it be? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I'm not sure. There, I, I think there is um, there's something about getting to the leaders of the system and helping them to experience some of this, mm. um, and and helping them. You, you've mentioned economics. Um, you know, it makes sense, and people understand it makes sense to try and create healthy people <laughs> rather than deal with the problems after they've you know been unhealthy. Mm. Um, and I, and I do think we've got to get that understanding into politician and, and the practice, what you do practically as a result of that. You know, it's got to be a focus on health and not healthcare. So if you want one thing, shift the focus from health to health from healthcare. Brilliant. We're coming towards the end. I'd just like to leave our listeners with uh, some bits of advice. Um, two things that are big in our network, it, it leadership, community leadership, and forming partnerships often with, with people who are who are different to us. Um, yeah. I wonder, you know, you, you led, uh, I think you said, the fourth biggest employer in the world. Um, what what did you learn about leadership during that time? Oh, that it's about relationships. I mean, I think there are a few very simple issues there. Um, it is about relationships. It's about very often, in, and particularly in a complex organisation, it's about shared leadership. I mean, I was chief executive, but I also had a chief medical director and I also had a chief nursing officer, a chief medical officer and chief nursing officer. That was a very strong partnership. And the chief medical officer could bring the doctors to the table, if you like, and the nurse could bring the nurses to the table. And then we had to create some kind of relationship with the politicians. And there were four years when I was chief executive when things went really well. And at that point, we had, I think, nine people in what one technically people call it in management speak, a guiding coalition. So it was the prime minister, his advisor, the minister of health, me, the medical director, the nursing director, and two or three others. And we were all pointing in the same direction. We all came with a different perspective. And during those four years, we made enormous progress in doing that. So I think there is a bit here about leadership that is about shared leadership and about relationships. There's also something here, uh, of course, about a leader being able to see the next step. You know, you've got to be, as a leader, explaining to your people what's going on and and how this will pan out and yes we are trying to this is our vision for the future and yes there will be hard times in between times and yes this is a hard time but actually if we get through this we can keep moving to the future so explaining what's happening describing um, how things fit together a big big communication role there Um, and I think if I think of community leaders both those things apply very heavily don't they 
of um, you know sharing your leadership. You're not a dictator. Um, you're, you're you're working with them. It's about relationships. And secondly, making sure people know what's going on. You know, you may be doing wonderful stuff, but if people don't uh, know about it and don't understand your motivations, and 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 uh, and uh, they may get suspicious. They may think you're doing things for your own purposes and for your own gain, mm. as opposed to doing something for a community. And if I had a third point, I would just do this point about building on strengths. Mm. Yes, you have to deal with weakness, uh, and yes, you have to deal with, and, and we obviously had to deal with, you know, people doing things which they shouldn't have done, uh, and, and criminal activity. You know, you, then, then that doesn't happen uh, everywhere in the world. You've got to deal with all that kind of stuff. But your basic stance should be uh, around building on strengths. That does are really useful answers. Yeah. Um, Finally, uh, you've got a lot of experience then of building building partnerships across different cultures and probably within communities as well um, and within organisations. What what have you learned about uh, building partnerships? Well, I think it's pretty much the same point as we've 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 just said that it, you know relationships is fundamentally important and and building on on each of your strengths. Um, there's an organisation called the Tropical Health Education Trust Thet.org. Um, which has got a, uh, a set out uh, eight principles of partnership, which I think are very good. And they are about um, openness, transparency and accountability. You know, so really important that you get those sort of things in. They're about relationships. They are also about um, the sort of you know, alignment of vision and alignment of values and alignment of aims. In a partnership between... A British hospital and an African hospital, they will get different things out of it. So they will have slightly, they, they need to have a shared vision and some shared aims for the project, but they need also understand they're getting different things out of it. And those need to be aligned. You know, it's not that the British hospital is there because they want to do an interesting research project which will help them back home. It has got to be, it's got to be something that's shared um, and about developing their people and about shared learning and, and development. So I think there's a, a series. I think there's quite a lot of experience of partnerships now, uh, and as I say, I think you know people make lists, um, but one of the best lists I've seen is is this one from from Thet. That was Lord Nigel Crisp, a former head of the UK's National Health Service, a global health writer and advocate, and an all-round fascinating interviewee. So that's almost it for this episode. Before we go, I will remind you that you can catch up on previous episodes of How to Build Community on our SoundCloud page or in your podcast player. Just search How to Build Community Aruka Network. Aruka is A-R-U-K-A-H. You can help support this show by making a small monthly donation on our Patreon page. Just visit patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network. You can learn more about us on our website, arukanetwork.org. And finally, if you have some feedback on this show or suggestions for future interviewees, then you can reach me via email, jake at arukanetwork.org. But that's it from me. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>